I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to Eureka's Sounds of Science. I'm joined today by Dr. Yugal Sharma from CAS, which is a division of the American Chemical Society. CAS specializes in organizing and analyzing published scientific data that informs researchers through their search platforms, such as SciFinder, and is also being used for custom machine learning and analytics applications. I'm also joined by Charles River scientist, Dr. David Clark, who is an AI enthusiast. Together, we will be discussing the role of machine learning in chemistry, how we can train computers to support researchers, and how we can keep machines happy with high quality data. Welcome, Yugal and David. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mary. Happy to be here. <laughs> Me too. So I want to start by getting our listeners on the same page. Can we discuss the difference between machine learning and true AI, and which is really more valuable for chemists, realistically? Sure, yeah. So you know, like, I guess we can start by defining AI. Right? So AI is it's really a broad concept. It refers to machines with intelligence. You know, and for the purposes here, we can define intelligence as the ability to solve a problem. So machine learning is actually a component of AI. It's actually a subset. And machine learning actually enables a system to learn by itself. For chemists specifically, AI is the ultimate goal. So it's using computers to speed up discovery and innovation. And machine learning is really what gets the work done here, and especially within applications like drug discovery. So essentially, you know, leveraging computers to and existing data to help reduce the available candidate space of potential targets. Um, this can be used to accelerate and reduce costs for drug discovery. This is really where rubber meets the road. And so, you know, AI for chemists, there's other applications around things like molecular property prediction, where we're trying to predict things like solubility or melting points. You know, all of these things leverage machine learning using known molecules and their properties to sort of predict properties for, for new molecules that we're unsure of. Other applications are around molecule design. So medicinal chemists spend a lot of time designing new molecules for a variety of applications. And then another sort of hot area right now for AI in chemistry is retrosynthesis is basically when you have a, a given molecule, using AI to predict viable pathways to actually synthesize that molecule is becoming a pretty key area. So from a drug discovery standpoint, David, which part of this process is one of the most valuable for chemists? Like in terms of being able to analyze giant piles of data and come up with something useful, at which point is that the most useful for you, a, a human chemist? I think there are various levels of usefulness. I mean, for many years, chemists have been taking data and uh, deriving predictive models from it, you know, perhaps long before people were thinking of this as AI. But I think one of the really breakthrough applications of AI that I've seen in recent years has been the uh, so-called de novo design of compounds where an AI has been trained on a very large database of known drug molecules and then asked to invent some new drug molecules or drug candidate molecules that uh, resemble uh, what it's been trained on in some way uh, but are still different enough to be innovative and useful. So there'll be perhaps molecules that have the same types of biological activity uh, and physicochemical properties, uh, but are nonetheless novel in terms of their chemical structure. Uh, so I think it's really those, as we've been mentioning, taking very large sets of data and bringing 
new discoveries out of them that you know you just couldn't do that with a, a human person it's that you know the, the task is just too great it's so easy for people to get stuck in their own knowledge space if you like and not be able to think outside that whereas the machine has no uh, preconceptions if you like so it can come up with something that's truly novel yeah so the machine theoretically can know every chemical, every drug that has been patented, the formula for all of them, and it can sift through that and find ones that haven't yet been tried. But it can do more than that, can it, Yugal? It can also predict what kind of chemicals might actually hit a biological target. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's sort of a, especially with, you know, things that are going on in the world right now around the pandemic is, you know, understanding mechanisms that can produce a specific kind of biological activity like like antivirals, um, you know, inhibiting viral replication, finding molecules that can sort of work along those pathways. And all of this is based on leveraging existing data. So using previous research, um, training up models so we can learn relationships between things like structure and activity, and then applying those models to new data or you know, maybe drugs that have already been approved in order to repurpose them as therapeutic agents. Yeah. So bringing it back to your company, uh, can you describe what CAS does as kind of an elevator pitch? Sure. Sort of the short version here. So we're a division of the American Chemical Society. We specialize in designing scientific information solutions that help organizations essentially be more efficient by leveraging the work and learnings of other scientists. And our, you know, our recent focus has gone beyond just our products like SciFinder, which Mary mentioned before, um, to providing customized services to drive things like enhanced scientific data management, increased scientific workflow efficiency, or you know, probably most relevant to the discussion here, enabling high-value, high-precision AI initiatives that require customized data sets coupled with scientific expertise. Okay. In an ideal scenario, what kinds of work can a computerized chemist do for a human chemist? I was just going to say, I think there's certainly a role for, you know, computerized automated chemists, as it were, to take some of the drudgery out of routine laboratory chemistry. People are certainly looking at some really interesting ideas now where you almost have this closed loop where, you know, the machines basically, you know, could design the chemicals, could make them and test them. And you could go around that loop several times without uh, human intervention. So I think there's some very exciting developments on the horizon that are definitely uh, taking advantage of some of these uh, AI breakthroughs that we've uh, touched upon briefly. Since you're coming from the American Chemical Society, obviously you guys deal with all kinds of chemical applications, not just drugs. So it'd be interesting to bring that perspective into it as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, just generally speaking, I mean, I think given the current state of AI, I think most of value is around leveraging computers to do kind of this high volume work that requires sifting through large volumes of data to identify patterns that can drive a particular outcome, similar to what David was mentioning earlier. And I think this becomes increasingly important because, you know, we're getting better and better and more efficient at collecting data and we're becoming increasingly challenged to be able to draw insight from that growing set of data. And so leveraging computers and AI to focus on Reducing the data space of possibilities allows for human experts to focus on smaller, high potential insights that can drive more successful outcomes. And so, you know, looking at chemistry, for example, um, you know, using available bioactivity data and predictive models to prioritize lists of potential drug candidates for a target of interest is sort of a, a key thing that a virtual chemist could do. In other words, you know, trying to determine what molecules might elicit desired biological effects like receptor binding um, and based on available data. 
So you know, once the list has been prioritized, then a human medicinal chemist can apply more complex thinking to review the candidates with the highest likelihood of success. And so I think David mentioned too, I mean, if a human had to analyze each of these candidates manually, you know, it, they would be able to consider far fewer than they could if they leveraged this kind of computer assistance. Yeah. I think that it's important to distinguish for people. There was always this talk for a long time about big data and collecting data and getting all the data you can, but this kind of leads into the next question. Like This data is pretty useless unless it's well-organized and you can show it to people in a meaningful way. So how important is it to input clean data and what exactly does that look like for chemistry? You want to go ahead, David? I was just going to say, I mean, it's definitely the old adage of garbage in and garbage out. Uh, and this really is you know, a huge challenge. I think, you know, we are getting better at it and maybe machines can actually help us in cleaning up uh, legacy data, which often hasn't been collected, perhaps with a view to being used in this way. Uh, but, you know, in science, there are all kinds of issues concerning are the data, do they have comparable units? You know, were the laboratory conditions similar or the same so that you can compare like with like? All these things are really important uh, questions when you're bringing together data from perhaps different sources in order to make sure that it's truly homogeneous and, and valid for, you know, the, the task that you're going to ask your AI to do. Yeah, that's great. Just to, you know, this, I, this is a really important question, I think. And, you know, at CAS, I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about this. And so, you know, I want to spend a little time sort of talking about our perspective here. And I think, you know, as, as David was mentioning, I mean, clean, relevant data is key for any machine learning approach. There's actually a, a recent study by Gartner and showed that as much as 85% of AI initiatives aren't meeting expectations. And a lot of this is driven by the quality of the data being used to feed these, these algorithms. So even the best algorithm can't fully compensate for, for poor data. And this requires a ton of expertise, not just from data scientists, but you know, even probably more importantly, expertise from uh, subject matter experts who really understand the domain. So you need that pairing in order to really be successful. And then talking about chemistry for a second, chemistry adds an additional layer of complexity on top of things. Because not only does, does one need typically you know, clean, robust data, but it's really important to optimize the way the data is represented or input into the algorithm. Right? So, so what does this mean? So it means if we're trying to predict a property such as, say, boiling point, it becomes really important how that molecule is represented as an input into the algorithm. In other words, how do we represent all the bonds, the connections, the structures in such a way that the algorithm can use them to classify? So a standard approach right now in the industry is to use a digital fingerprint, which leverages an algorithm to map the space around the atoms in a molecule. And then this fingerprint essentially becomes a set of features that the model uses to make predictions. So, you know, it's kind of flying the ointment here is that computers still aren't at the place where they can replace human intuition and creativity. Um, you know, at CAS, we believe that expert human curation is the bridge between data and successful AI outcomes. So going back to, you know, sort of the fingerprint representation of molecules we were just discussing, we actually found that when expert curation replaces algorithmic fingerprint approaches, in other words, you know, a scientist is determining what features of a molecule might be important for a given use case, predictive accuracy for models can increase by up to 30% for specific use cases such as predicting biological activity. And so essentially, you know, algorithms are important, data is important, but expertise is still required to fully extract value from underlying data sets to drive accurate predictions. 
and you know can't emphasize that point enough yeah it's not enough to just you know type the word the words h2o equals 100 degrees celsius boiling point into a word document like a computer is not going to know what that means until you translate it into a language the computer can understand yeah so does this really mean that what we've got at the moment or the systems we have at the moment they aren't really as intelligent as we would like them to be and they certainly can't replace human intelligence yeah i would definitely agree with that i think that i think we're getting there right i think we're taking steps there's a lot of room for improvement but we can't underestimate sort of the value of, of the human component sort of in, for chemistry, like having a chemist in the loop, you know, in terms of the AI initiative that you're, that you're undertaking. So that's sort of a key component to drive successful outcomes. It shouldn't be understated. I think what we're seeing at the moment is that, you know, these sort of AI stroke machine learning techniques are, are really good for doing a specific task. But perhaps what we've yet to see is the true kind of intelligence of being able to generalize from one thing to another, which I guess is one of the sort of fundamentals that we think of in human intelligence. You know, if you teach somebody to do something, then if they're reasonably intelligent, they should be able to take that learning and apply it to, you know, another area without further training. And I think we've yet perhaps to see that in the realm of, of computer intelligence, at least in chemistry. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, we're definitely not there yet, but I think it's what we strive towards. I mean, maybe someday we'll get there. But part of that is, you know, how do you encode the domain expertise in, into a given model? There's so much information out there and it's sitting in experts' heads, scientists' heads, right? So um, we still haven't found a way to get that out into the computer, but uh, yeah. we may get there eventually, but probably not anytime soon. And of course, not all the experts agree with each other. <laughs> yeah, that's the other part, right? Exactly. <laughs> How do you deal with sort of conflicting scientific data? Yes. So it's another problem. So once the data is ready, translated into a, a way the computer can understand, how do you go about training the machine? Yeah, so typically, you know, algorithms in this context are they're trained by example, a lot like how humans learn. So, you know, to use a general example, you know, if you're training an image recognition algorithm to differentiate between images of a dog and images of a wolf, you present it with images of dogs and wolves, one after the other, along with the correct classification for each. And eventually the algorithm will learn which characteristics of the pictures are most important to differentiate between those presented images. And in theory, the more images you present, the better it gets at classifying. And so, you know, once you have a trained model, you can then apply it to a set of data, in this case it would be images, that, that were kept independent of the training. And then how well it classifies that test set becomes a measure of the overall model performance or success. And so, you know, for chemistry specifically, right, in a similar fashion, models can be trained on like sets of molecules that have known desired biological effects, for example, antiviral agents, you know, to learn relationships between property and effect. And then these models can then be applied to other substances like previously approved drugs or something to determine their potential for therapeutic use. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on one of the things that Yugal mentioned there, this idea of, of the validation of models. So, you know, it's relatively straightforward to take a set of data, some descriptors and some kind of statistical uh, machine learning method and derive a, a relationship, if you like, a sort of a line through the data. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a relationship that you've established will work well when it's applied to previously unseen data. And that's where the use of what you go called the test set or the validation set 
is really, really vital when you're trying to understand, you know, how useful this model is likely to be in the future. Uh, you really need to establish that what you've developed is not just good at fitting to the training data, but actually has real predictive power outside uh, the training set. So yeah, this model validation is, is a crucial part of this uh, machine learning and validation process. So just to add to that, Mary, I mean, there's an interesting story. I, I don't know if people in the audience have heard, but um, going back to the image recognition task between dogs and wolves, they trained up a classification algorithm to differentiate between the two, but it turned out that the recognition algorithm was actually picking up on the background of the pictures because all the wolves had a snowy background and all the dogs were on grass. And so essentially it wasn't a wolf detector. It was a snow detector at the end of the day. And this is a <laughs> you know, kind of a lesson learned around diversity, to your point, making sure that you have you know, uh, data with the right set of diverse features so that you, your model can generalize and not necessarily just memorize a specific set of data. Right? So it's the generalizability, I think, that, that David was referring to before, having that as a key component of successful predictive outcomes. I think one of, another really important feature of a really good model is that it will actually hold its hands up and say when it can't make a prediction because it's beyond its knowledge, if you like. I think that's much more, well, that's just as important as uh, a lot of the other features. Otherwise, you'll have models making predictions that are not justified and could well be misleading. Absolutely. Identifying its own knowledge gaps, mm, mm. basically. Has it also happened, I assume it must, that in teaching a machine successfully to, for example, differentiate pictures of wolves, it picks up on some sort of difference between dogs and wolves that we haven't noticed before. Yeah. Not in this example, obviously, but like in a more complex example, it'll say, it'll identify a chemical or something and identify a property of the chemical that has gone overlooked by people. Yeah. So if you're talking about, you know, those characteristics that can help classify predictions, right? So if you're, again, going back to the image recognition, there may be characteristics of that image, right, that we hadn't considered as humans that are actually driving that prediction. Um, and we see that, you know, we, we see that in chemistry as well. One of the challenges actually in, in with chemistry data, I think is kind of a subtle implied point that, that David was just making, is that scientific data is inherently biased. It's because, you know, we for example, CAS, we curate information from scientific journals, publications, that kind of thing. But those experiments that we're curating are, are, are pretty much uh, successful experiments, right? There's not a lot of publications around things that have failed. And so when you're talking about predicting, like let's say you have a reaction and you want to predict the kind of yield you might get for the products, you know, as we're, as we're leveraging ex existing data, most of data are successful reactions that have had high yields because that's what's being published. Um, and so getting around that inherent scientific data bias is another challenge, you know, going forward. It's something that needs to be considered when you're developing your models. And to David's point, I mean, if, you, if a model can say, hey, this data is biased in some way, or maybe some kind of exploratory analysis can reveal that, you know, that the data is too biased in order to be able to produce successful outcomes. I think that needs to be a, it's actually a key step in making sure that you're building out reliable predictions. I mean, David can speak to this more, but my understanding is that you know, having a, a drug candidate fail early is one of the most valuable things that it could do because then you don't waste time and resources on it. But in academic settings, a a research failure is, you know, never published, not really made public, but kind of speaks to the way we need to make 
scientific failures more mainstream. Yes, I think there's certainly a bit of a change in the in the sort of clinical trials um, area. Certainly, I think there's a lot more uh, encouragement and maybe even pressure now for companies to publish you know, negative trial failed trial data so that you know, so that we can learn from it and in in the interests of transparency. But yeah, certainly in you know, the sort of medicinal chemistry literature, you know, most of the time, as Hugo says, you know, people are reporting their best compounds, obviously, because you want to show that you've been successful. Uh, so yeah, that is definitely a problem. The machine needs to know what failure looks like as well as success. Yeah, absolutely. David, in hearing this, what do you think is the role of a computerized chemist for your own work? Well, in terms of what I do in computer-assisted drug design, I think there's a great role for uh, you know a computational method to come alongside to help with idea generation. So this idea of de novo molecular design, uh, you know, we can all come at things with our our experience, our years of knowledge and experience on projects, what we think will work. But having something that can literally kind of think outside the box it could be really valuable. And so, you know, I, I would really welcome that sort of uh, technology kind of popping up alongside me almost, you know, like a sort of chatbot thing, just saying, have you thought of this as you're looking at this, you know, almost just sort of running continuously in the background, following what I'm doing, but somehow, you know, suggesting things that it can see that I've not yet thought about. I mean, I think that's future gazing a fair bit, but I could I could envisage that happening. Some sort of, you know, intelligent assistant to my daily work would be really interesting. Almost like a recommendation engine for research, right? Kind of yeah, like yeah, Netflix, yeah. if you like this and you might like this sort of thing. But, you know, if you have this hypothesis, you might want to also consider this. I think we're moving. That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, it could say, I see you've, you know, made this design idea. Have you thought about X, Y, and Z? You know, which is the kind of thing we all do. But, you know, as, you, as you've mentioned, these algorithms, these models could be trained on, you know, the entirety of known drug knowledge or, or whatever other domain you're working in. And so could easily bring in many, many insights that uh, obviously, you know, one hasn't even encountered before. So, yeah, there's a very exciting uh, future, I think, for these type of approaches. Yeah, that would be totally rad. <laughs> Absolutely. So speaking of important scientific research, can you, Yugal, tell us about the potential for CAS's algorithms to contribute to COVID-19 research? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so we've actually done a, a lot of work in this space, and you know, we have ongoing initiatives around this as well. But you know, overall, like, CAS has been very active. One of the primary ways we help is actually with data and domain expertise. So we actually published a bunch of data sets and substances and related bioactivity data that data scientists can use to work on things like finding um, you know, already approved pharmaceuticals and substances with similar structures that could be effective in treating COVID patients. All of these data sets are available for free on our website at cas.org slash COVID-19. People can go there and download them and explore them on their own. And we also have several internal initiatives supporting COVID research. And all these studies are published in some fashion and are available on the website as well. Most interestingly, recently, our data science team has published uh, a study in ACS Omega on machine learning approaches to prioritizing COVID-19 therapeutic candidates based on drug repurposing. You know, essentially, models were trained on CAS data integrated with curated bioactivity data to learn relationships between molecular properties and the ability to inhibit specific viral targets. And then these the top-performing models were then applied to a set of previously established FDA-approved drugs 
and substances in our CAS antiviral candidate compound data set. And so what's encouraging is that several of the identified candidates that have come out of the study have been validated experimentally in other studies. And this actually underscores the value of leveraging something like machine learning to help accelerate ideal outcomes for drug discovery. Yeah, that's great. And I think, again, this uh, picks up another really important uh, element, perhaps, in machine learning and an AI perhaps generally is ultimately it's the experimental validation of the prediction that, uh, you know, is where the true worth and validation of these approaches comes from. So the fact that, yeah, some of these things that the machine learning has predicted as active are actually showing up active is, is fantastic. Yeah, I don't think you can really overestimate the importance, especially for COVID, of finding drugs that are already known to be safe, already been tested in multiple groups of populations and all of a sudden discovering that they might be helpful for someone who has COVID symptoms. Definitely, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Mary and Hugo. Yeah, thanks, Mary and David. Very enjoyable. Appreciate the time.